0: Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we try to cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke,
1: And I'm Jay McKenzie.
0: Molly McHugh is an information warfare expert who has advised foreign governments on combating the threat of Russian disinformation operations abroad and ways to combat malign Kremlin influence. She's written articles for Politico, Wired, and Foreign Policy, as well as her own substack, GreatPower.us. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University, where she teaches a class specifically on Russian hybrid warfare. Molly has been interviewed by MSNBC, PBS Frontline, France 24, and a variety of other places about U.S.-Russia relations, foreign and domestic disinformation campaigns, and most recently, the ongoing war in Ukraine. You can find her musings on Twitter at Molly McHugh. We're very grateful and lucky to have her with us today. If you like what you're hearing. Please make sure to subscribe to the newsletter at didnothingwrongpod.com. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, please give us a five-star rating. We've got a great show for you today. Thanks for joining us. Molly, thanks for coming, and welcome to Did Nothing Wrong.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on.
0: So can you talk a little bit about how one gets into becoming an information warfare specialist? It's uh, sort of a not something you always see on a career path chart. <laughs> so how did this, this happen?
2: No, definitely not. You know, in my case, it was really learning by getting hit by the truck, for lack of a, of a better way to describe it. But my early career was somewhat circuitous, like everyone who finished school around the same time that I did. We all worked on the Iraq War for a while, and then we did Middle East stuff, and then I did some work in West Africa, but finally got to use my various Russian post-Soviet degrees by uh, starting to work in Georgia after the Russian invasion in 2008. So I worked with the Georgian government, then led by President Saakashvili, um, from just after the war until... Um, 2013 when his presidency ended and this was this really critical time when Russia hadn't lost the Georgia war but certainly didn't win it, it was really revamping its political warfare uh, and non hard power tools in its near abroad and to test them for what they were going to do beyond and so, uh, I learned a lot about this by being in Georgia when Russia was testing its new informational tools against Georgia, uh, which is now led by a Russian-made oligarch who is turning Georgia away from the West and, you know, killing Saakashvili, who's in prison right now. So, um, it's, this, it was this really critical case study, which a lot of which was not totally visible to us until after the election was lost in 2012, the squirty oligarch took over the country. But it was sort of the things we learned in that time period, um, became a window into what was going to come. Uh, and a team of, um, uh, sort of specialists and experts from the Baltic states, um, who were there sort of became friends and teachers in this space. Uh, we were lo- trying to sort of figure out what happened and learn more about what was, what was going on. And sort of through this whole period, we then got to watch all these things unfold in Moldova, Ukraine. Um, the new tools being used in the Baltic states. But sort of being out there, working with these countries, trying to help them during this time, you sort of learn by doing. Often by losing, but but you learn by doing more than anything else.
0: Right. You do learn sometimes from the ones you don't win significantly more than the
1: ones you win. Was Georgia when we got the first uh, chance of uh, hearing about the patriotic hackers that were supposedly not part of the Russian government, but it was this it was all it was all brand new, right? But a lot of that messaging about, oh, this isn't this isn't the Kremlin. This is just people who love Russia and want to stop Georgia. And that I remember that there was that stopgeorgia.ru. was that a forum that was that was active during the war?
2: You're right. It was a really interesting period. You know, in two thousand and seven there had been the uh, Russian state's cyber attack on Estonia, which was sort of paired with some kinetic activities on the ground. Um, and it, that was sort of this little window into, hey, Russia's got a new bag of tools they're probably going to start playing with. But in August 2008, there was the whole parallel, uh, parallel to the invasion. There was this whole line of things happening in the information space and in the cyberspace. Um, obviously, attacks on the Georgian government websites, just sort of trying to create, you know, chaos and disruption and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then that whole informational side as well. It, it's funny, because this narrative about the quote, unquote, patriotic hackers was not used at the time but has been very carefully constructed since uh, and sort of backfilled from when we started hearing this term around Ukraine. And I think that's really interesting if you sort of look, if, if you, you can, because you can kind of document how this phrase, how this narrative, how this story about the supposed Russian volunteers that just needed to help the government during their attack on Georgia.
1: Right. And it just, happened to occur right before the the ground invasion and all of these just happened to take down all the Georgian government domains and yeah I can I can see how they went back and said oh this is this is how it was formed and created and all these people came together because they're just so patriotic
2: the thing that makes it nonsense though is obviously 2007 like they had already tested how to do this with like not patriotic hackers with obviously uh intelligence adjacent uh dudes so then like trying to say oh we we had no plan to use these highly effective tools during our invasion even though we say that it's important to have a multi-domain campaign it was just dudes on a couch who decided that the mm-hmm. best thing they could do is uh is contribute to the war effort uh, with no warning at all and in a 5 day time period um it's just it's really nonsense and it's actually sort of it's like If you look at the various journalists who have been kind of roped into telling the stories of these people who claim to be the patriotic volunteers, it's kind of embarrassing that there were not more questions asked about, like, what the hell story are you telling right now?
1: I imagine there were a lot at the time, because all of this was brand new and convincing journalists. Well, first, you have to figure out what's actually happening and occurring and document it. And then you have to go out and convince the world. Right. So it it must have taken. Were you were you. Directly involved in that? Did you have that that struggle of of getting people to understand what was occurring?
2: I mean, the thing that's so that was so fascinating, frustrating, irritating, uh, still is about having worked with Georgia and on Georgia and caring about Georgia. Is you know we have these brief windows in which we, the West, are engaged on these things or have bandwidth to pay attention to them or whatever, and Russia doesn't. They have the annual checklist of crap, right? So. That story, the whole thing about the hackers and the blah blah was not told at all until maybe five years later. It was after Ivana Shvili took over. But every year on the anniversary of the war, Russia has a package because, you know, who's not writing about the anniversary of the Georgia-Russia war anymore? Anybody. So every year on the anniversary of the war, there'll be some story. They get somebody to write that kind of expands this narrative of. NATO was aggressive, Saakashvili was terrible, like he wanted to drag NATO into a war with Russia, Uh, poor Russia had to defend itself, how could they have known and had time to rebuild 300 kilometers of rail lines in order to invade Georgia in advance? Like, I mean, every year they have consistent narrative that they put out, um, but it's a constant effort for them. It has been a constant effort um, since 2008 to win the narrative battle. On Georgia because they lost it at the time, uh, like during the war, they lost it. That's why there was space for a ceasefire. Um, but after they have like, like completely consistently worked on new legislators, new diplomats, uh, trying to sell this story of how it was actually Georgia's fault. Um, That they were provoked, that they shouldn't have taken the bait, whatever the thing was. We've all stories we've heard about Ukraine as well. And honestly, the Ukraine war, the the newest phase of the Ukraine war beginning last February, is the thing that I think pokes the biggest hole in it. The problem is, for 10 years now, you've had this awful, oligarchic, Russian-leaning, faux-Western government in Georgia that contributes to all these narratives, we will say, Oh, yes, our former government was responsible for the war, you know, all these other things. It's just, it's really a mess.
1: Yeah, they really do love to rewrite the history as much as possible, don't they? And I think they count on people forgetting and getting distracted. And it's it's that little bit of bit by bit, they try to chip away until the public consciousness, they hope will change. And it's a reminder that we have to keep repeating these things, we have to keep telling people what happened and no you're not crazy and yes you remember it correctly it's natural for people to forget but but some things can be known and we we just have to repeat it otherwise it it is forgotten
2: it takes a lot of work to push back on russian narrative and by work i mean knowledge base for the individuals who want to contribute right like yes anybody who wants to kind of be in the game can absorb the basic points but um you know, there's just there's just a lot you need to know about the Kosovo grudges and all the crap that happened in the Baltic states and things in Ukraine and things in Georgia, things in Moldova, things that happened in Western Europe, things that happened here, because they they sort of wrap all these things together. And their evidence for something that they're trying to say will always be some other made up story that they used before. So if you don't understand the context of the other made up stories, you know, it's sort of like a cascading challenge that far too many fellow traveler types absorb from the Kremlin and repeat as if they are wisdom. Right. And we've seen a lot of that from non Western media during the war, Mm. this part of the Ukraine war coming from uh, Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin America, et cetera. So it's just like, it's a, it's a good reminder that all of this takes diligence and attention, um, not just from the target, but from everybody who supports pushing the Kremlin back.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. It's not going to stop anytime soon. And you definitely have to have that background of why are they telling these stories? What are they referencing when they talk about, you know, this particular thing? And knowing that they've got media outlets that are in some cases legacy Soviet media outlets in, you said, Latin America and Africa that are prepared to pump out some of these stories basically talking about whatever the Kremlin would like them to say. How much would you say your life has changed since Russia's full-scale invasion, this particular phase of the invasion of Ukraine began?
2: Uh, it's a good question in terms of, you know, how, to, how much does it affect us personally? Um, you know, I do as much as I can for Ukraine. Is it enough? No. Do I need to do more? Absolutely. Does everybody need to do more? Absolutely. But it just, it means I spend more time on work that in no way results in Monetary compensation of any kind, <laughs> um, because it's important and I believe in this stuff and you don't walk away in the middle of a fight. So I, I try to do what I can to support, uh, organizations that I know there, units that I know there, individuals that I know there, um, you know, working more so in the region than here, um, to try to build consensus on issues. How can we get things to move faster? How can we do these things more effectively? There's actually a lot, there's just like a lot going on around the context of Ukraine in the West as well, that all needs to be sort of managed and argued about and pushed forward. This is a really seismic event. And I still think the baseline, certainly in Washington, Uh, I won't speak for free European capital, certainly not the Balts and the Poles and uh, some of the Scandinavian states. But the baseline remains like, how can we just put it back together? Like, absolutely no concept of what a different Russia can look like. But how can you maybe get Putin to get out of the chair and put a different guy who's a little less stinky than Putin into the chair for that reset window where there's like two more years when we don't have to give a crap about any of this stuff again? I really don't think there's deep thinking yet about the fact that putting it back together may not be possible. Um, And my real concern at this point has become, are we the ones that de facto preserve the horrific system that currently exists in Russia because we're so afraid of what it would look like if it changes. And uh, I don't think we do that consciously or on purpose. Right. But like it will de facto be what is happening because of this lack of creativity And I, I just, I think it's a, it's a thing worth starting to discuss before we get closer to the end of the, of the war.
1: Do you think people are afraid of, of something worse coming out of it? Because I know there's, there's no guarantee that whatever comes after Putin is, is better. Is it fear or is it just not knowing what to do, not having any idea of what, what that would look like?
2: I think it's kind of all of those things, uh, Lack of imagination, lack of options. We all know there's not, like, a next great thing waiting in the wings uh, in in Russia. Uh, there's certainly nothing that is capable of... Uh, if miraculously there was some uprising-slash-revolution and, and there was a need for new faces to take over, what would those be? Mm-hmm. And um so I think that there's always that challenge of no good next option, certainly nothing prepared, no imagination about what that could possibly be. But the fear is very real uh, in terms of, and, and it will always be articulated most concretely about uh, sort of nuclear rollback, like, oh God, what would happen to all of the nukes if if Russia were to destabilize or collapse, which is a legit fear since Russia has vague control of these resources at at most times. I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in these what if, oh God, possibilities that we don't see how... We had those discussions in the past, got them totally wrong, and have spent the last 30 years in this clusterfuck, excuse the language. (laughs) Um, But I think that is really, it's always been a core of what I teach in my course. You mentioned my course at Georgetown, and it's something that I'm focusing on much more concretely this year um, because I really think the more you look back, the more you see our lack of knowledge, and by I mean our, the West in general, everybody outside the Iron Curtain you know, our lack of knowledge about the history of Russia, but the Soviet period and all of the captured peoples, right?
1: Um, And our unwillingness
2: to confront that at the time uh, in the more, you know, recent history and then after the end of the Cold War is why we don't understand why the Balts and the Poles and the Ukrainians think the way they do and push so hard on all the stuff they do uh, and why the Bulgarians are secretly selling ammunition to the Ukrainians and why the Czechs are doing so much. They know what it looks like. And I think You know, in the 90s, there was this, the Russians very successfully convinced Washington and Berlin, the absolute worst thing, the thing you need to worry about the most is the quote-unquote toxic nationalism rising in all of these newly freed places, right? Like, you have to push them down, and uh, otherwise the alternatives could be much worse. Um, which is why there was pressure on Ukraine, on Kazakhstan to give up their nuclear stockpiles uh, and all these other things. But, like, essentially our perspective has not changed since 1994, right? It's like we're still stuck in this Moscow-centric view of what the region is and how to manage it. Moscow, Berlin, and Washington talk to each other. Um, And we need to engage our actual allies much more honestly. Like, these are the countries we should be listening to, not freaking Russia. (laughs) So I think this, like, missed period of history and really confronting ourselves about the fact that we got this wrong. Like, Russia is what it is now, at least partially because we got it so wrong in letting them dictate terms in the region um, in ways that we should have been much more forthright about. We really need to look at that much more closely before we start making decisions about what the possibilities of what's next can be.
0: Right, right. And that's definitely... Something that you are right. We really haven't updated how we think about this in some time, and yeah, what you said about creativity—that one hits. Just a lack of what does this look like going forward without
1: a center on Moscow and what what Russia is doing. That's and we're really we're really dismissive of of the polls of the Baltic states in a way that is really just offensive, and I and I think a lot of times we always. In the U.S., we frame these things around our domestic politics, and we don't let them have their own voices. And I'm sure that's something you've, you've confronted and, and dealt with in various ways. But the people who know better, the people who have this experience, they need to be heard. And I think maybe only recently, maybe only this past year, that's really started to happen on a more realistic, on a better scale. Am I, am I right by that?
2: You know, it's been absolutely glorious to have more Ukrainians engaged in online in the Western information space um, in a very active and assertive way in the past year or so. Um, I think, you know, for a long time, we've all co-inhabited the ecosystem of garbage where Russian trolls, Russian propagandists, Russian goons, you know, all the adjacent Narrative launderers sort of sit there and poke at you. You don't really know what it's like in the Moscow cafe culture or whatever (laughs) crap, you know? (laughs) The Ukrainians just aren't having any of it. They're like, no, fuck you. You don't know our history. You're killing our people. Like, my grandma is living in a bus somewhere because of you. Like, no, we're not buying your shit anymore. Like, here's what actually happened in history. Here's what needs to happen now. And here's what you're actually doing. Why don't you confront how horrible you are? And it's actually pretty fantastic to have A very credible legitimate source of that happening online that isn't us right like these are the people with the history and i i think you know the more time you spend in the region the more time you spend in these places it is the stories like for us this is something that happened a really long time ago and like okay maybe we'll go learn about stalin if we have time but every single person in the former soviet space has uh their parents, their grandparents, you know, their family story of deportation, of starvation, of terror, of torment. Every family was affected on one side or the other directly by what, uh, you know, just a new version of Russian imperialism, depending on how you want to how you want to phrase it in historical context. And they're very clear on how that links directly to what is happening now, the narratives Putin is trying to sell, what you hear coming from the propaganda channels, um, the way that they talk about Ukraine, the way they talk about what comes next. For them, this is not such a hard sell. And for the further you get to the West, the more it's like, huh, I've never heard that before, really? And that gets a little tedious. And I just, this is this lack of historical understanding That isn't just about knowing the stories, knowing our allies, understanding who we're talking to, but really understanding that we have made the wrong assessments about Russia, what it is, what it will do, what it wants, because we are refusing to understand the through line of history that has not changed for them at all.
0: Right. So in March of last year, you wrote a great three-part piece about the war in Ukraine titled, There Is No Way Back. If we want the war to stay in Ukraine, we have to win it in Ukraine. 10 months later, would you say the West has done enough? And if the answer to that is no, then what more could we,
2: should we be doing? So I think the, obviously my answer is always going to be, no, we haven't done enough. Uh, but that being said, I will 100% asterisk it and say, uh, more has been done than I feared would not be done, and I think there's a lot of back padding happening from a lot of different places about all the wonderful things that we've done for Ukraine. And none of those things are small or insignificant. And the mechanisms that we've come up with for finding armaments, the way that we have have enhanced logistics and supply lines to Ukraine. Uh, our ability to spend the money much faster and get the stuff they need uh, in a timely fashion. Okay, all of that is great, and and I'm not crapping on any of it. Like, everything that has been done for Ukraine is good. But I think there's still this perspective that the pace at which we arm Ukraine will control or restrain the pace of the fighting, the scale of the operations that Ukraine can conduct in ways that we're more comfortable with, which is not correct. Like it's an co- incorrect assessment to, right. to try to think that. Um, but I think there's still this hold up here, which is why we're always so freaking slow to give them what they're asking for. Like we're finally sending real armor for them, real armored vehicles uh, and capabilities and like whoop-dee doo, like why weren't those there? Last March. Again, it's great. Huge applause. Applause from everyone for everything that goes. But this thing where we're too slow, I just think we need to go back and understand that since last February, the answer has been this is the Ukrainian strategic objective. And they will get to the objective, whatever they decide the objective is. There's different ways to get there. And one of those where they have proper tools, proper munitions, proper weapon systems less people die, specifically less Ukrainians die. And that's great. If they don't have those things, the longer range missiles, air support, better drones, uh, drone defense systems, armored vehicles, whatever, they're still going to get to the objective. It's just that they're going to do it with like Ukrainians and pickup trucks, which means a lot more Ukrainians die. So we can sit here and pretend like that's not happening. That Um, The gap between the capabilities that they have available to them and what they actually need is not made up by Ukrainian lives, but it is entirely closed by Ukrainian lives. I mean, it's it's a very significant casualty rate, but the Ukrainians are willing to pay this blood price for us because they understand the importance of winning the war. Um, for themselves and for the rest of us. So I think we just need to be more realistic about what we are asking and how if we do not answer what is being asked from us in a more effective way, the situation after the war is going to be different than I think we think it's going to be. But it is on us to rise to the moral need to arm the Ukrainians properly Yes, it is expensive. Yes, it, you know, impacts all of us, blah, 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 blah. Sure, absolutely. But it is pennies on the dollar of what we would ever have to pay in an escalation with Russia on our own. And you have a capable army that is battle tested over years that is willing to do this work for us without complaint. Just give them the freaking weapons. This is not a hard math problem for me like it is for some people. But nonetheless, that's where we are.
1: Yeah, I guess if we really start to think about it, and I'm pretty sure you share this line of thinking that if if Russia takes Ukraine, if Ukraine is no more, then it's a matter of when they go after the next state and when they go after NATO and the the cost of defending the baltics of defending poland what is that going to be whatever comes next if putin is emboldened and gets this great success out of this war then it's going to be worse we we know that don't we Uh, history has taught us that russia doesn't stop
2: it's not just if they win it's if they don't lose decisively it's not the what next as much as also the what now right like there is, there are processes underway in Russia that we don't have great visibility on. That Yes, it's like hashed out like minute by minute on social media all the time. Like, ooh, this guy didn't show up for a meeting. Like, there's a freaking coup in the Kremlin. Like, there's no coup. Like, it's all fine. Um, but <laughs> there's so much micro analysis of the dynamics in the Kremlin and all these other things going on. But there is real opportunity to force a confrontation of self in Russia that has never happened. I mean, they have never come to terms at all with their history and certainly not with their modern reality and their own accountability for what has happened, what will happen, what is happening now. And that can be quite powerful for most nations who are not totally delusional to have to have these confrontations with sort of self. Um, And the Ukrainians are doing a really good job of opening windows into things that none of us could do in the same way right i mean almost all ukrainians speak russian fluently enough that they are much more capable uh, in the information domain working in the russian media space russian social media space um than any of us could be they know the culture they know the history most of their families are intermarried like they have a lot more of a basis of how to do this work than i think any of the rest of us could And they're doing really interesting stuff to try to engage. It's super frustrating. And like most Russians are just like, you know, eyes closed, ears closed. I don't know what you're talking about. But they're doing really interesting work to try to force this confrontation with reality that I think we've all failed uh, in achieving in the last 30 years.
1: Are you imagining something like Nuremberg after World War II and the Germans were forced to confront what had happened and it, it, is something like that possible in russia is that is that a goal is that something you would like to see
2: i mean war crimes accountability for the modern stuff certainly everything from 2007 onward i think is important for anything further back it's really not even truth and reconciliation so much as truth like right the other the other post-soviet and i do hate this term but there's no other convenient catch-all for all of them the other formerly captive of the Soviet Union's nations have, for the most part, have, in varying degrees, obviously, with the Baltics probably being the most transparent, sort of, then the spectrum getting less transparent as you move around toward the stands. But they've all had at least some deep lustration of the Soviet past. Uh, in terms of looking at history, opening archives, uh, documenting things, collecting stories, writing their own history, trying to teach this to the new generations of students, really trying to preserve historical and cultural memory in local ways. Um, and the Russians really don't. Like, they just haven't. There's been brief windows when some of the KGB materials and archives were open and accessible, but they're not really, it's not really something that people do. You know, there's the craft, the, the sort of, classic in the last decade uh example of the caragloden story where some grad student like discovered he was like obsessed with figuring out who the executioner of his grandfather was and it ended up being this whole you know sort of amazing interaction between him and the granddaughter of the executioner whose family was also like the other half of her family was also purged and killed and like the the discussion between these two of them realizing None of them know their history. They're living, you know, half a mile away, like executioners and victims are living right next door to each other, uh, living in the same family. How can it be that we do not know this? Right. And I think that's the thing, especially for Americans, where we're all like from somewhere else. So we're all kind of obsessed with knowing enough of our family stories. Right. Like my family came from Ireland in this year and the Italians came this year. And here's how all this happened. The idea that you would live in a place where you absolutely don't know what your family was doing 40 years ago in a really critical <laughs> period of history is sort of weird, but they don't. Wow. And I just think it's important um, that there be this opening, uh, but it's you know it requires national will to want to do that, uh, and leadership that says it's important, and that's not Putin.
0: No, definitely not. And um, speaking of national will to do things and leadership that needs to uh how worried should we be at this point about republicans who are hinting at and in some cases explicitly calling for an end to us aid to ukraine can they really do this
2: i i worry about it for a number of reasons one which right now is probably the lowest concern for me but jay and i've talked about it a lot obviously in the past but it's sort of the ideological horseshoe where isolationists on the right and isolationists on right. the left actually sound very similar And there can actually be commonality of purpose, even though the basis of why they think those things is very different. Um, there could be, in this very closely divided Congress, enough progressives sort of won over to this stupid isolationist garbage that it could be an issue, but I don't think it is right now. So, but I'm just putting it on there as like a thing that in terms of how things are discussed in public, there is a lot of this happening on both sides. So, there's that. But I think specifically to the Republican I don't even know, I mean, can we call it a caucus anymore? Like, God knows what it is. But um, (laughs) uh, to the space that is occupied by GOP-backed candidates and officials. What was really interesting slash terrifying to me during some of the floor debates for the election of the new speaker, which was like a giant clown train crash that just went on and on and on, was that in every round when the dude it was probably always dudes that uh came to nominate the rogue candidate not the mccarthy candidate whoever they were nominating that round they would give their little like three minute speechy do and almost always the direct linkage that you were supposed to absorb was ukraine is the reason you don't have gas in your tanks ukraine is the reason you don't have food on your table ukraine is the reason that your kids can't have all the clothes they want like ukraine 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 trying to say that this irresponsible spending that relates to the war, how can we afford to do this when our border is insecure? And, like, I'm so tired of these nonsensical strawman arguments, but they did it very deliberately. It was done in a concise way, in a form in which it is unchallenged, right? Because it's just like, here's this nomination speech. Um, and that worries me because one thing we really don't give Trump enough credit for, but he deserves it in this very narrow way, from his campaign onward, he was very effective at figuring out how to condense what should be a complex foreign policy thing into like a four-word phrase that his blind dummy supporters were willing to accept uh, without any question, because it made sense to them. And you saw it all the way back at the beginning of the campaign. like During the campaign, you would see it from the focus groups of the things when already his people were animated against NATO, something that most Americans who did not think about it all. Right. Right. But they already had these talking points of NATO doesn't fight terrorism. So why should we support it? What's this Eastern Europe thing anyway? Like that's not our thing and let Europe do it. Like we have stuff to do here, but they had these like very concise explanations of why they didn't want the thing. And that, that trend of boiling down things into these little snippets was something Trump did very effectively on foreign affairs. Um, And that, I think, has continued in whoever is packaging crap for this rogues caucus. And it makes sense to people, even though, I mean, the vast majority of Americans think their lives are okay right now, like people are doing pretty well, like yes, food costs more, but whatever, like the general assessment of the country, the general mood of the country is pretty stable and high. These are points that resonate with people, and it's really easy to make whatever your local problem is, oh, there's not enough funding because Ukraine, or whatever. And that seems to be echoing amongst a larger group of not just national but local officials and that's the kind of thing people absorb in an unquestioning unchallenged format like if you hear it at the school board meeting you're going to be like yeah that ukraine thing right because nobody's there to fight about ukraine and then it's harder to to you know introduce the information about why in fact this is important and the fact that it's not actually costing us very much at all and like all of these other things so i think that whole space i'm very worried about Americans don't seem dumb on Ukraine. The support for Ukraine has stayed high in all polling, uh, in both parties. But the perception that this split faction of the Republican caucus is creating, that they represent a larger percentage of America than they do, and that they are doing it consistently, that they have so much airtime with it on Fox and other places, the perception is that Americans do not support Ukraine in as high a uh, in as high a percentage and a, a consistent manner as they do, and it's easy to leverage that in a moment of crisis if they're strategic about it. So, yes, all of these things are big red flags.
1: Well, it it got to the point where when Zelensky came to the U.S. and came to Congress and gave his speech. I saw and I follow the the various right wing influencers and it essentially as easy as them rolling their eyes at his attire or what he said or anything he did. And their audience immediately knew what they meant, what they were implying and all the backstory to it, because the very online right is pretty much united in this anti-Ukraine messaging And when a big news story drops, or they they need to go after Biden, it seems pretty consistent that there are problems. And it's because of Ukraine. And and they just keep repeating it over and over. And you're right, it does create this perception that it's larger than it is. But my, my fear and concern is that these people do have a an outsized media space. And we have seen them chip away at topics and ideas. And it's the same thing that that defended Trump through his impeachments and every other scandal, because these people are are good at their messaging, and and they know it works.
0: And what you said about them bringing it to things like the school board meetings, where they're not getting challenged, and they're getting that idea in front of people that aren't necessarily ready to have that conversation or real up on any of that. That's the other thing that is very disconcerting about all of this is that they don't stop. They're always on message. They're always pushing. They're catchy, easy to remember, in some cases, even three words, you know, stop the steal, lock her up, build the wall. They're very good at that kind of just catchy, thoughtless messaging. And it's going to be a problem. It already is.
1: We saw it in Arizona with, with Charlie Kirk and TPSA, that operation, who have been very vocal against Ukraine, and, and they were very involved in those local elections there. And yeah, if you look at what they're saying in their interviews and on social media, it's very much in line with this. And they didn't perform well in the elections, but nevertheless, it was a consistent part of their messaging. And I'm not sure how concerned this MAGA media wing really is about winning. Uh, they They certainly seem committed to their messages, even if they're not great politically, they don't they don't stop for whatever reason, whether it's they think the grift is on or they think it it grows their audience, whatever it is, they're going all in with this. And it is it is scary to me. It is it is unfortunate to watch, but but we see it every day.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean God, every time I'm reminded that Charlie Kirk exists and that people give him <laughs> millions of dollars to like mind fuck an entire generation of people. I just want to weep for the future of this country. It is a fucking travesty. But you know, all that, all of what you both just said is exactly right. And the problem with all of it is that it is uncontested either by other Republicans, uh, other than very few who still are honorable in their messaging, and it is basically uncontested by Democrats because, like, there's this fear, especially in the administration, that will like get up and give big speeches about democracy. Oh, we love democracy. We're supporting democracy everywhere. Blah blah blah. But they also have the deep fear of these are not topics that we think are going to win us elections. So we're not going to talk about it in all of these other contexts. So there's just unchallenged territory on the seeping isolationist narratives coming from the wackadoos on both sides, much bigger on the right, not excusing the left though. Um, Cause nobody else is doing that work. And there's like acknowledgement amongst the people who care about this stuff, that this work needs to be done with most of the country to leverage that support for Ukraine, where clearly Americans get, oh, there is a good and a bad in some situations, and you need to be on the side of the good. Like, that's where we belong. That's our history, right? Let's be on the side of the good. I think we need to leverage this moment uh, where people are really committed to this stuff, uh, where people were kind of grossed out by our exit from Afghanistan uh, and how it happened and what it looked like and what that means for us and what's happening now just leverage this stuff in a way where you can start talking about American engagement in the world in a sensible way that makes sense to normal households. And I think there's so many great examples of this with Ukraine. Americans have given a lot to support Ukraine. They started the, uh, you know, I forget what the correct, it was like welcome.us or something. The direct sponsorship of refugees coming to the United States started with Ukrainians uh, so an American family can say, hey, we're willing to have someone come stay with us. We'll help them integrate, you know, into their American life. And there was like almost three times the number of Americans that signed up to sponsor Ukrainians as were needed. And I think that says a lot because that's not a small commitment. That's a big commitment of yeah. time, of resources, yeah. Yeah. of of, uh, of belief, of open heartedness. Um, and I think that says a lot about uh, where the country is on a lot of this stuff and how when you ask Americans to serve, they do they rise to the call and one of the things that has frustrated me so much about this administration is their lack of using this moment to call on americans to believe in something better it's been okay your gas might cost a little more we're real sorry about that like come on like this is a war for the future of all the stuff we believe in pull people into it ask them to do something directly um and they've been reluctant to do that because they think it's not going to win them points electorally so i think it's those two things, crazies, unrestrained, very consistent, talking in school boards, sheriff's meetings, whatever else, with a huge media presence on all of this stuff, which does have a huge impact on how the rest of the world is thinking about America, looking at America. Should we be concerned if there's a Republican victory in the next election? Can we count on America to keep supporting and leading support on Ukraine uh, for the number of years it's going to take to finish the war to rebuild the country? All of this needs vocal leadership on the other side, uh, and it doesn't really have it yet.
0: Right, right. It's almost like they're afraid to sound cringe or whatever. They're afraid that if they ask people to step up for an idea, that people are going to be like, oh, what, huh? We've gotten so far into that, like, we can only do these things ironically, space, or something.
2: (laughs) I don't know what the right analogy is, but yes, ask. Ask people to do things. Tell them why you need them to do a thing. And I think generally, not all Americans, but most Americans want to be asked to help their country. Right. And it's a time to do that and and make that concrete and rebuild this base of support, especially in the younger generation, that's super adrift on how they think of democracy and what its value is and what its benefit is to societies. The most concrete example of why this shit should matter is in Ukraine uh, Mm -hmm. and the opportunities that Ukraine has for itself if they can win. And we just need to make sure we're using that to talk to our own people in all of the Western societies.
0: Yeah, you're never going to get a better example than this. Than this is what the other side does when they're in charge. This is what the other side looks like of that argument. And, yeah, I think we're definitely at a point where you could you could tell people that you could put it in those terms of is democracy the way we do it perfect no but this is what the alternative these people are selling you looks like go look at russia go look at china this is what you get
2: yeah i think the the other thing that's been super encouraging in the ukraine context that leverages baltic recent history and experience and some of the stuff that's happening in finland and sweden as well but ukrainians have had to and much need Like, the Ukrainian government needed a lot of... It needs a lot of reform. It needs a lot of, like, revitalization. Uh, A lot of that's been happening since 2014. But it still needs a lot of work. But in the last year, there has been enormous, enormous transformation of governance and how the government interacts with its people in Ukraine, partially because of the war and the forced chaos. And, like, okay, we have to make everything digital now because nobody's going to be in the same place for two days at a time, right? So... But the enormous transformation of how government delivers services to its people during the war in Ukraine, uh, is the kind of thing that we should be watching much more closely for crisis management situations, but also just in general. Like, these are really innovative ways to, uh, again, transform how a government interacts with its people, which I think is so dead in American democracy. Everybody is frustrated with how that interaction is happening, right? At at any level, local level, national level, whatever it is. So how can we look at these examples and use some of those, uh, you know, use some of those things more effectively to sort of revitalize our own democratic governance process in ways that will engage the the younger generation that right now is just like...
1: (laughs) (laughs) It would be nice if we could have that discussion and with it increase our our literacy of the internet and and news and media and all of that consumption I don't know how we get that into schools and how we we teach people to to be adults online but it it would be nice if we could at least start to have that conversation I know it's going to be inherently political but we still need to have it we still have to discuss this stuff because we have to do better we have to be better and I think that that starts probably at a young age, mm-hmm. yeah, in, in elementary school, and, and teaching kids the dangers of the internet and, and the lies that can spread and how it can harm them, and there's general safety concerns. But it goes beyond that. We have to we have to learn how to use the internet to our advantage because so often it feels like we're just using it to shoot ourselves in the foot or to amuse ourselves to death. Yeah,
2: totally. And I think the terrible in-between place where most younger, uh, certainly my niece and nephew, if any of your kids are old enough to have devices yet, the place where, the place where the in-between generations are right now is just don't believe any of it. Which is a terrible place to be, right? Like, (laughs) baseline of complete cynicism, (laughs) um, is like what Russian society has been like for like 30 years, and we don't, we don't want that to be our, uh, our role model in, in information space things. But yeah, no, absolutely. I think figuring out better ways to try to teach this stuff, but also just like, you know, rebuild civility in this country. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know the answer to that i clearly am not genius enough to figure out that problem um but if, until we once again understand that in fact democracy is not confrontation and fistfights but dialogue and compromise and the ability to manage our own internal disagreements uh for these 200 low years uh is why we still exist and haven't had to rewrite our constitution and explode the country multiple times like we need to come back to this where we can all talk to each other like grownups and understand that on both sides, I think there needs to be big leaps forward and how we are uh, thinking about governing and what government brings to us now uh, in ways that right now it's just super stagnant and like nobody really wants to transform what they're thinking on policy and governance. And we need that. We need some really crazy, wild thinking about how we're going to fix these problems.
1: I think we we held out hope that January 6th would be a bit of a tipping point and would kind of wake people up to to the dangers and the reality of the situation and that just didn't happen so i guess we're waiting for the next moment because i i think that's the way these things go is they build and they build and they build and hopefully whatever comes next isn't worse but there is that lingering fear at least for me yeah
0: definitely it's The kind of thing that you would think that the images of people in the Capitol trashing things and right-wing alt-right influencers sitting at Nancy Pelosi's desk pretending to make phone calls, you would think this would have gotten people a little bit off the fence. And for a minute, it felt like it was going to. You had people even like Mitch McConnell looking at this and saying, no, this is enough. But here we are, you know, two years later and the same thing happens in Brazil almost to the day.
2: Well, you know, Steve
0: Bannon's a busy guy, what can I say? Certainly is. Certainly is. Uh, so kind of shifting gears a little bit there, we've we've seen some arguments saying that we can keep sending Ukraine military aid, but we shouldn't be sending them help to rebuild their civilian infrastructure. They don't think that should be on the United States. Can you explain what the problem is with that argument?
2: I'll be honest that I'm sort of ignoring Americans who make this argument because it's clearly stupid. It's like, <laughs> I mean, if you want to understand yeah, yeah. why World War II happened, it's because that's what we said after World War One. Like, good luck, work it out, let us know. Oh, oh, that didn't, that didn't, oh shit, now we have to do this again. So I think, but I think the bottom line is, uh, again, we are, we have basically asked the Ukrainians to confront, uh, one of our two greatest geopolitical problems on their own, on their own territory, in their homes, in their cities. Uh, to pay the price uh, of confronting the Kremlin that we have failed to confront uh, themselves. So we absolutely have a complete moral obligation to help them rebuild their country because of what they are doing for us and because of the price they are paying. Um, but beyond that, it's just not it's stupid not to. Ukraine is a real country. It's a, a country of, you know, 40 plus million people with real industry, with heavy metals, with significant things. They have a huge biotech industry. They have a ton of technology companies. Uh, they make drones. They invented the Ring doorbell. Like, they do, it's not like, this isn't like Moldova, you know. It's like, I'm sorry, Moldova, but it's true. You really need to step it up. But it's like <laughs> a real country with real capabilities that could, for example, be a very significant partner for the United States in defense industrial uh, products because they have a weapons industry and have been tremendously innovating it during the war. And can can produce all the stuff that, like, we need to produce, but most countries aren't willing to buy because our shit is so expensive compared to the Mm post-Soviet garbage they can usually buy. Ukraine can be, like, a really good ally for us in all of these spaces. And I think the good news is the Ukrainians are thinking about it this way. They don't want massive piles of foreign aid only what they want is for people to think of this as an investment in Ukraine's future and in these partnership ways. How can we build partnerships in defense industries? How can we build partnerships in construction? How can we build partnerships in rebuilding all of the metal and cement plants that the Russians have blown up over the past eight years so we can do this stuff ourselves? You know, they really are trying to like they understand the challenge they're going to have in the space and they are trying to look at it as partnerships and investment that will come back uh, and repay people who are willing to help them, obviously, in this intermediate period. But again, this is a huge country with an actual real economy when the Russians aren't constantly taking it apart and blowing it up. And um, that's something we should be focused on um, as a real significant benefit for us, uh, but also understanding... Um, again the ukrainians are trying to construct this as, as as much as an investment fund as possible and not look at it just as like bottomless aid but there is going to be this interim period where obviously their economy can't work right right now because the russians are blowing it up and people are at war and all these things and so they do need uh, economic support right now absolutely but i think again we kind of owe that to them um and it's a really small component of uh what the alternative would be
1: and isn't isn't part of the reason Russia is is going after this infrastructure because they've accepted the fact that the war isn't going to end suddenly. They didn't get to march on Kyiv in a few days. And this is potentially months and years that they're going to be here. And I think they've come to the realization that if they can't have the quick victory, then they'll take Ukraine apart piece by piece and they'll make it so people either can't or just will choose to leave because, yeah, the lights don't work. I don't have clean water. I am afraid that a that a stray missile is going to show up in my apartment building. They're spreading fear intentionally, and we can't let them get away with that.
2: No, and the great thing is, I mean, you see it online a lot. There's sort of this ebullience with which Ukrainians wage the war. And not because they want to kill people all the time, but because they understand they're on the right side and that they're defending their country. That's very real. And so the idea that, like, the Russians already know. If they don't know, then the Kremlin should just fire themselves. But, like, they are not going to win the battle to erode the will of Ukrainians. Ukrainians are in this to win it. And that is a very real thing. And it's like a an echo chamber of that's not changing inside Ukraine. So I would, that, but they know that in our case, that's not right, right? Like, all of the messaging, all of the Gerasimov is back in charge, all of the things that are happening... It's about us and eroding our will to fight and making us believe that Russia is now, now accepts that they're going to have to fight this war for a really long time. And maybe we should stop arming Ukraine because it's all a lost cause and it's not. So I think that perception battle is a really important one. Uh, and I think one of the things the rush, the, the Russians have been so frustrated about in the last year is, you know, what they hope for is that attrition, is that erosion of Ukrainian will, which is why they blow up cities, blow up schools, blow up hospitals, blow up ambulances, because they want the pictures of rubble and decay and death, and they want Ukrainians to have to live in an environment that feels like a war, right? And Ukraine has been marvelous about not letting that be the reality. Absolutely, there are cities that have been basically raised to the ground, and that's going to take some more time to fix. But in terms of the, you know, missile strikes in Kyiv, um, in other places, the repairing the train lines, like, they rebuild stuff, they paint it, they get the trains running again, they get the power back on, they get you enough basic comforts of living that you understand that there is a change under Ukrainian control. But I think this thing where they're not living in the rubble, where they are actively building and repairing during the war, and it is fast what they can do has been really important for that domestic will, right? And really important for pushing back the perception the Russians are trying to create for Ukrainians that you're living in a war zone and it's all hell on earth. Um, so kudos to the Ukrainians for somehow being able to do this. I mean, honestly, it's like, how did, how did they do that in five days? I I don't know, <laughs> but, but it's really, there are many heroic stories uh on the infrastructure crews particularly the train guys who are basically keeping the country connected to itself in ways that are and to Europe in ways that are possible impossible to describe otherwise but all of this is like a civilian effort in the war that is truly incredible
0: and you said to a large extent that it seems like Russia has not been able to get ahead of the information space especially in the west they've had the the Ukrainians have just been killing them in that domain, being able to kind of manage perception at least over here. And one of the ways that seems to have really gotten to the Russians in the last while is the the North Atlantic Fellas Organization, or NAFO. It's a group that sprung up after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and they've turned into a collective dedicated to countering Russian propaganda and disinformation. And they've been surprisingly good at this, and the Kremlin doesn't really seem to have a clear answer on how to effectively combat that, do they?
2: Yeah, you know the the whole information space has been super fascinating. I think in the past year, Russia has not won the traditional information battles in the West, and the Ukrainians are crushing it. And I think we should be realistic that in many instances, I mean, the Ukrainians are psyoping all of us, right? It's like it's like, hey guys, fight this war. Like, no, I know the war's been going on for five days, and and but we still need the weapons. Send the weapons because we're winning. Oh yeah, they're winning. Let's send the weapons. But that absolutely happened, right? Like. Mm-hmm. No one was going to support Ukraine until they crushed us psychologically with information campaigns that were totally real. But like, this was very deliberate. But I think we need to be really realistic that the information war we're winning is against ourselves, right? It's keeping up Western will. It's keeping them on board with Ukraine and the efforts that are underway. And that is super important. But that's what we're winning. The Ukrainians are doing very different work inside russia i don't know that many others are supporting them and and again i think that's where they should lead but the rest of the world is a real mixed bag and uh you saw it like this year at the un for example when many world leaders speeches uh from the global south quote-unquote were essentially hey yeah we get this war in ukraine but enough already let's talk about the rest of our problems and i'm not blaming them for that there are certainly many problems that need to be solved but they live inside the information space where they're not getting grain because Ukraine, where global energy prices are high because Ukraine. And the Russians have done a really good job of, of building partnerships and selling that idea that it's like Ukrainian intransigence that's the real problem. So that whole space needs a lot of work. It seems like the administration just announced a big Africa push from our side, which is like a whole area where we have no policy that I'm aware of. So it's great if people want to go visit and see what they can do about that but it, it's a longer-term problem of these levels of engagement and pushing back on Russia and China's outreach in the global South, and with that, we are not winning in any way, shape, or form. So, NAPO, I think, is super interesting. It's basically like the organic troll farm that everybody wants to claim they can build online for profit, right? Like, any any political advisory, as like, we're gonna build you an online influencers group. NAPO basically is that, and, you know, Sometimes it makes me real nervous. Like, it's just a thing and it exists now and like it's not really under control of anything, right? It's just like, it could do anything. But it's been super helpful in building that echo chamber inside of Twitter specifically, uh, that has really been instrumental in getting out sort of these short, sharp messages in support of Ukraine in a timely fashion and just mocking the shit out of the Russians, which is super important. Um, so I think there's a lot of things in there that are worthy of evaluating. Uh, and applauding the construction of this sort of very organic thing, which is so much more effective in its organic form than the fake bot troll garbage things that have existed, uh, in other ways. But it's a really, it's such a unique example. I'm not sure that it's replicable. And so that becomes a problem then of did we really learn anything? (laughs) Does this help us in the future? I don't know. But I think to me it was extremely encouraging that so many individuals understood and people who are not people like us who pay attention to this crap all the time like regular people in europe and the united states understood how important it was that they contribute their voice their network their 25 followers that they can talk to in some cases their four hundred thousand followers and others that they are a part of this group pushing these ideas i think that has been really important again it's this whole ask people to serve and they will do it dynamic i think napo is a good example of that like you tell people this is important you need to help amplify these messages and people are like let's do that no problem we can do that so i think that's been a really interesting example of how how this can work positively and how when there is substance this is always this empty battlefield issue we talk about right but like when there's something that, that co- like, habitates the space that Russia tries to inject its venom through, it fails miserably, right? Uh, and so filling that whole space with all this other stuff uh, has been really critical in, uh, in the last year. So how
0: would you say Russia has adapted to that? They, how have they changed their disinformation efforts since the war began? Are they more desperate at this point to get back that space that's always kind of traditionally been somewhere they've been really good at?
2: I wouldn't say desperate, I would say they've just sort of given up on the kind of trolley space stuff right now. Yeah, there's some stuff happening, but it's just not, it's like, they're way invested in the more traditional things, the fellow travelers, the adjacent journalists, <laughs> the diplomats and foreign friends who don't think the war in Ukraine is a very good idea. They're very focused on more native, you know, masked ways of accessing uh, Western audiences, which is why it's really unnerving when Republicans who have never said anything about Ukraine suddenly start talking about Ukraine and how Russia may have a point and stuff like that. So, um, I, I but I think there it seems to have been a migration back toward you have to use local voices to influence local messaging as opposed to trying to troll farm anything that's going on. But I do think we need to be aware that in the intelligence space uh, writ large, and in a lot of what the Kremlin is trying to transmit about itself. All of that is about influencing us and what we see, uh, how we see Russia making decisions about the war. And I just don't think there's enough awareness of that sometimes.
0: Right. So looking ahead, what worries you as potential threats to Ukraine's continued success on the battlefield? Would you say it's domestic problems in nato countries china's potential moves either a decision to move on taiwan or maybe beijing upping aid to the russian war effort
2: um i think the questions of like the russia china how we deal with adversaries uh that the real challenge we have is still one of mindset um and i'm not sure that we've changed our mindset enough Uh, on what we are doing about these things uh, to be prepared for what's happening now, but also what comes next. And I think, you know, I'm not sure that we're well served by what we have learned trying to confront Russia clunkily and slowly over the past 15 years (laughs) and applying that to China because Russia is like the most incompetent of adversaries in so many respects and has this time horizon of like two months because really they're just focused on survival it's like this prison mindset of like i don't care if i die tomorrow as long as you die today first (laughs) and that's what we're used to dealing with and then you look at china who literally has a 50-year plan and it's not a bullshit 50-year plan it's an actual like 50-year planning horizon on which they accomplish goals um and we're not used to dealing with that level of strategy, of patience, of diligence. And I think if you look at, for example, as we were just discussing, things like the Global South and how China has built and expanded uh, diplomatic influence, economic influence, various strategic sectoral purchases of things like heavy metals uh, and, and sort of core control industries. It's just It's a totally different level of strategic thinking and planning than I think we're used to dealing with. The good news is China is some I think is very realistic about Russia. They are supportive of Russia. I think this idea that we can somehow split them is like a, a, an overwrought and nonsensical concept. China understands exactly what Russia is and what it does. They learn from them a lot. They're very happy to have them out front as sort of the tip of this sphere of disruption mm-hmm. on which they can build and learn and benefit in many respects. And, like, China is so happy about the war in Ukraine. Like, the West has poured everything into this. It has revealed some of our critical weaknesses of planning, like, nobody thought we were ever going to fight a land war again. We're used to doing everything from the air. It turns out sometimes you still need tanks and armor, right? Like, ooh. <laughs> but so they're watching all of this very closely, but also the the amount of resources that NATO has committed, uh, that Russia has committed. Like, how much everybody is paying attention to this is, like, trying to love this, right? Which is not an argument for us, by the way, of why we need to not be in the war in Ukraine. It's why we need to win it quick and reinvest in our own defense planning and um, capabilities in the meantime. Understanding that this type of thing, the challenges to the system, this is how Russia and China think. Like, how do you use hard power? Like, when you're going to use hard power, how do you do it in a way that um, really challenges adversaries and systems uh, in a way that benefits us and uh, puts them at a disadvantage? Uh, China's absolutely thinking about this. I don't think, not as a obvious China expert, I don't think that the whole, like, second front thing right now is an immediate threat. Like, I don't think they're going to invade Taiwan tomorrow. But certainly they are thinking about all of their strategic advance across South China Sea, beyond. I still think there's a preference. Like, the Chinese army has never had to do a real foreign war, right? right? So I think there's a real preference for using all the other tools. And when they do, in fact, have incredible economic clout, diplomatic leverage all these other things why wouldn't you use those things first and i think china does seem to understand that better than russia in in some respects so i don't see it yet but it's an obvious concern and i just think like we internally struggle with this pivot to asia like should we be in the like let europe do the this stuff and we'll be in the pacific no like these things are going to be the same bag of challenges uh, it all needs to be a holistic uh, shift in mindset, shift in strategy uh, for us for the next fifty years. Like, what is our plan to do all this stuff? And I don't think we're there yet. Uh, and it's challenging with Europe, especially because they took too much Russian money. Some European right. countries, Germany, I'm looking right at you. And now they're like, well, maybe we can just fill that gap with Chinese money. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> let's <laughs> it's not let's how discuss how we got where we are now first. I mean. I think there's and again it's this issue of mindset of like if we really want to say there's uh in a 1960s like way a benefit to being in the democratic economic, you know, integration universe, we need to start making that a real thing again. Like no, we're not going to take the investment money from China. No, we're not going to do this shit. Like we're going to start separating these out, trying to be sure there's a benefit of investment and collaboration between democratic countries in significant ways. Uh, and also just being less dumb about how we're letting, especially China steal our IPR in just right. about every, every sector. Uh, but anyway, it's like a whole checklist of things that I think we're not anywhere near accomplishing. Um, and still very early on in how we are approaching this adversary.
1: I think one thing worth keeping in mind is that China is very good at learning from Russia's mistakes and, uh, we have to be aware of that and be prepared for them to do it better. If this is a Cold War II and, and a lot of the same themes and ideas and issues are going to come up, well, China's paid attention and they've learned some things and they, they know what Russia did right. We've seen them copy a lot of the disinformation campaigns and aiding those and learning how to do their own, and they're getting better at that. And, and I think they're going to keep showing us that, that they are a, a better version of what came before.
2: Yeah, and they have this, they have a very different, uh, much more holistic view of information control, specifically domestically. It's not something that I think they can replicate yet globally, but it's not just the, you know, propaganda, like, breathe the propaganda. It's not just that. It's uh, how do you divert entire audiences? Like, on the anniversary of Tian- Tiananmen, you know, they'll, like, have viral videos of cats doing cute things, but it's like, how do you absorb attention to distract from things that could otherwise be looked at. Um, They do all these different things that I don't think the Russians do because they are looking much more holistically at, you know, online attention economy stuff in ways that are kind of interesting. It's been weird in the last couple of years to see China go from this very quiet online presence to a more assertive, using their diplomatic accounts, state media accounts, uh, things like that a more sort of, like they're really into the whole satire like punchy jabby look, look at us being cute in our online burns space <laughs> where like you never would have seen a Chinese diplomat do that no,
1: uh, until no. a few years
2: ago and I think they really I mean obviously as Jay said they've really learned this from the Russians like those are the accounts that get tons of attention is like the, you know, Russian embassy in South Africa, the Russian embassy in the UK that just sit there like throwing out, uh, you know, satire and, and jokes all day long. So they are definitely learning, but if there is this, I think there's this from the most basic aspect of technology and understanding how algorithms work all the way through to extremely deep understanding of data, data collection, what you use that for, uh, that we are not paying attention to and if we do not understand that the chinese like the chinese social credit crap like if we don't understand that they have they are building social profiles of all of us from whatever data they have accessible to them including the shit we sell about ourselves online isn't that so great thank you credit companies (laughs) if we don't understand this is happening uh and it's a huge part of how they're training ai and doing things um, then we're pretty dumb. And uh, I'm not an expert on all of those things. I hope that people much, much smarter than me are looking at this. But they are deep into the technology of behavioral engineering uh, and information control, but specifically behavioral engineering in ways that we are not paying enough attention to because they do not want to have to use tanks against us.
0: No, no. And I... I wake up every morning and I pray that they figured out a way to shut down TikTok completely. That's, that's the one thing that we're doing. <laughs> and diff- Zoom. <laughs> yeah, we're missing out on the idea that this is this massive like data collection machine masquerading as a cutesy social media app. So cute. And what are they going to do with it? Who knows? I
2: don't want to know. That's really the truth.
0: Yeah, you you only have to look at the version of TikTok that's available in China versus the version of TikTok that's available here to understand that they know exactly how bad this is. And they're not going to, you know, subject people to this. No way. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So what would you say the most effective way for ordinary people to help Ukraine right now is?
2: On the most basic level, if you have kids, talk to them about what's happening, why it's important. Be active in the information domain and reposting stuff about Ukraine and posting important messages uh, about why we are supporting Ukrainians. But really engage, like decide you're going to engage your family and peers uh, and neighbors who are super lazy about consuming propaganda on these topics and explain why it's important and be armed with information, particularly personal stories of Ukrainians that can really help you in the space. Uh That's a whole bag of things. Like, fight the fight. Like, when you're confronting the grandma or the crazy uncle who's like, ah, the Russians seem okay to me, like, confront them and do it in a consistent way. Make it anti-American to not be on the side of Ukraine, because um, it is. So there's, like, that piece. All the support that people have been doing... Already, uh, support for humanitarian organizations, support for, uh, refugee and resettling organizations. If you are willing, support for more directly for the war effort for things like buying body armor, uh, ammunition, all sorts of other things, uh, drones. A humongous portion of the war effort is still crowdsourced. So, and crowdfunded. So if you have been supporting Ukraine, remember to continue to support Ukraine. Uh, the war is not done. Uh, it may not be as shiny and new as it was last February, but the need for all of those things is still there. Um, and support Ukraine in other ways. Buy Ukrainian products. Most Ukrainian merchants are still selling online. There's a lot of different ways, and the Ukrainians have a whole bunch of different websites that are very sophisticated about how you can buy Ukrainian things. Donate to Ukrainian charities, help Ukrainians abroad. Find an area you're comfortable with supporting, and support it if you can, even if it's five bucks a month. like It all adds up. It's really important. But The most important thing you can do is talk to elected officials about our continued support for Ukraine and American leadership in the world. Because right now what they're getting is a wave of phone calls from crazy Fox News viewers arguing that we have no business doing any of this and shouldn't we be using that money for whatever thing. And they need to understand that voters in America, the vast majority of voters in America, expect our support for Ukraine to continue. Uh, Whether you're a school board official or a freaking sheriff, or in the city council, or in Congress, make this a part of what you're engaging elected officials about. And the ones who do support it, promote them, you know, give them that boost online that all of the elected goons really crave. So those would be the things I could say for everyone, information support, whatever physical and, and financial support you can do, if you're willing to, you know, be more engaged in Ukrainians who are in the United States, there's a new initiative that launched today uh, about the sponsorship, uh, you know, refugee sponsorship things. It's, I think it's called, like, the Welcome Corps. It's like a domestic peace corps that is going to be more formal in how it is enlisting Americans to all these causes. There's lots of different things you can do, but continue to support Ukraine and do so actively in your everyday thinking and online presence. All of these are uh, the most important things that anybody can do with a few minutes of their time.
0: Yeah, those are those are some great suggestions. When the war finally ends, what are the chances of a different Russia emerging from this? Perhaps a Russia without imperialist ambitions that places a much higher value on human life?
2: I want to say it's higher now than it was a year ago. But I think the most positive thing I can say is there are some very interesting initiatives looking at enhancing fracture in Russia. There are not very many initiatives thinking about how you build structures for what comes next. I mean, the fundamental challenge in the 90s was nobody took apart the security services and they all just continued exactly as they were. And then they were like, hey, we're still here now. We're in charge. Woo! You know, so I think thinking, but really starting to think through if you believe what almost all Ukrainians believe, which is Russia will fall apart at some point because it shouldn't be an empire anymore. What does that look like? we uh, in our intelligence services who 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 has the report on what it looks like when Russia falls apart and how we're going to deal with that right like we need to start thinking about all this stuff because until we are willing to, to like actualize it in our own assessments that these are possibilities we will de facto continue to shove the bag of poo that is Russia right now back together in its current form and not ask it to change we need to ask it to engage us in a different way for any ongoing relationship in the future and we're not doing that right now uh at all so i think right now i see if anything a hardening of the viewpoint of the passive russians like no we're fine the way we are just go ahead and kill the ukrainians just do it faster like it's not our guys who are doing it. It's these mercenary. like it's fine. Send all of the Dagestanis to die in Ukraine. Nobody cares. Those kinds of attitudes are so fundamentally imperialist uh, and have hardened, I think, across much of Russian society in the last year. It's controversial to talk about. There's a lot of fights online about it, but it's absolutely true. I don't see right now a bright star for what comes next in Russia. and having seen a lot of the discussion and in the independent opposition, I will air quotes that in the past year, I'm still not seeing a lot of acceptance of responsibility. I mean, we were talking about, you know, how do you rebuild Ukraine earlier? And it's sort of like, well, all of the seized Russian assets should go to that, you know, right? Like there's like a huge reparations Mm -hmm. piece that's going to need to happen here. Um, And right now there's like zero willingness to figure out how to get that done. Well, okay, there's like 20% willingness for that now, but it needs to be much higher. Um, Russians need to pay a price for this and understand what that price is, but also understand the vision of what we want their country to be for themselves and for us. And I don't know that we have that yet. So we need to figure out how we're articulating that. And just, like, ignore all this russophobic, you know, (laughs) blah, blah crap that they'll throw at us when any time you try to accuse Russia of anything or talk about how it could be different, they will get attacked by 59 goons who are saying that it makes you a... You know, whatever. <laughs> and like, Jesus. <laughs> folk, but but we really do need to start having these conversations about how Russia's failing itself and their failures tend to boil over across borders into other places. And we're all fucking sick of it. And if they want to have access to our beaches, our malls, our economies, our schools, then they need to start acting like a normal country. Otherwise they can go on vacation in fucking China. And I'm sorry, but that's it. That's where we are right now.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think our I think our understanding of Russia boils down to mostly Moscow and St. Petersburg, but we should also start considering that there's this whole other part of the country that we can't even begin to describe or understand. So we can't just uh, focus on one aspect. It's, it's a, it's a great big place and, we need to learn a lot more about the people we don't usually talk about. And, and hopefully we can have those discussions as well. And again,
2: the opportunity right now where a lot of those communities are aware, like, why are just us guys from Siberia getting sent to die in Ukraine? Like, why aren't those other guys from St. Petersburg doing this too? There's opportunity here in enhancing dialogue and awareness in Russia. And I know that Ukrainians and other a few others are working on these things. I'm not sure that we understand what that really means it's the same right now in all of central asia there is tremendous opportunity for finally really separating these places from moscow in a formal and concrete way and i'm just not sure that we're engaged in that at all but you know again there's a whole list of things we could be doing but we need to understand the war in ukraine is not just about ukraine it's about all of these things and have this holistic strategy Uh, for doing it which means not minimizing it and not telling americans like don't really pay attention things at the grocery store are going to be fine tomorrow like you have to tell people what this is about and what it's going to require of them and why it's important
0: well thank you molly we really appreciate your time thank you for coming on with us today amazingly enlightening
2: thank you guys for having me
1: thanks so much thanks so much it's been great
0: Uh, seriously thank you that was a lot of fun thank you guys Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can go to didnothingwrongpod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Griza, B-J-J, BJJ, as well as D-N-W-Pod. Thanks again for tuning in, and remember, everyone mentioned Did Nothing Wrong.